Amen. such a beautiful thing when God's people are together praising Him in song. Well, many inside and outside the church have asked the question, why are we so anxious? Why do we worry about so many things? Things out of our control such that sometimes we can't even sleep. We're so burdened by the onslaught of the what-ifs. I think I have some insight into this nearly universal phenomena. And I think at least in part, inside we rightly sense we're insufficient for the complex world we live in, flung about by circumstances that feel out of our control. We're surprised by events we did not predict, some of which are cataclysmic, events we don't understand. We live in a modern-day Babylon, and we know it. We know, too, as believers, that our self-dependence is counter to God's very good plan for us. We know of God, and we understand that he is the opposite of us, He is in control. He does understand. And he has planned all that happens. And he and he alone knows history, past and future. So we need, so to speak, a bridge over the troubled waters of our lives. And that bridge is God's providence. So pray with me as we begin this evening. Lord, we gather now as your people to hear your words to us from Scripture. Let us hear with clear ears, understand with clear minds, and see with clear eyes. We rejoice, Lord, that it is you who is in control of all things, and not us after all. For for this we rejoice and are thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I I changed the sermon text a little bit, so if you will open your Bibles to the 33rd Psalm, and we're going to be looking uh, for echoes and allusions to God's providence and his plan for us in history. So the 33rd Psalm, verses 6 to 11, and you'll, you'll spot it right away, of course. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap, and he puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded And it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but know this. The word of the Lord will stand forever. So what is at the root 
of this age of anxiety? And the answer I propose is that of a worldview with materialism as its root. And by this I mean a worldview that depends upon what we, the created, see and feel and touch. That is the material world. And this current age of anxiety is in large part an awareness deep inside that to live with a materialism worldview is to exclude the supernatural. And this now uncovers the conflict. We were created, each of us born with the impress of the supernatural upon our hearts and our minds. Yet because of indwelling sin, what Paul calls in Romans 1.18, our suppression of the truth by our unrighteousness, and down to verse 22, we become futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts are darkened, claiming to be wise. We become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images of mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. So what does God do? Well, we exchange the truth about God for a lie. And since we don't always see fit to acknowledge God, he gives us up to debased minds. Absent Christ and the Holy Spirit's regeneration of our mind and of our hearts and souls, we don't think properly. In fact, we can't. That is the sad base state of all mankind. It's no wonder we are anxious. Earlier in Romans 1, 19 to 20, Paul writes this, For what can be known about God is plain to all, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Paul is saying that the very creation we see makes it clear to us That there is a creator, there is the supernatural, but we suppress the knowledge of this creator. And the consequences are grave. Our minds become twisted. We have debased minds such that we cannot rightly discern the things of God. And we suffer at our own hands, in our own mental prisons, in our own futile attempt to control our little worlds, depending on no one but ourselves. Until it all comes crashing down, as it inevitably does, and we are forced to look beyond ourselves to our Creator. But here, and this is, I think, a facet of the problem, even among believers, we harbor doubt. Do we really believe in full that God is there, that He has a comprehensive plan that will be executed without exception and without any obstacle, glitches, or even possibility of not playing out exactly as he has planned events to be. It's hard for us, even as believers. He has a perfect plan, a just plan, a very, very good plan that leads to an eternity of never-ending glory. For all who are his, yet always that serpent of evil takes advantage and whispers to us, did God really say? 
The point is that our eyes, our ears, our minds, our hearts, the material world misleads us and tells us things that are not true. The culture is wrong, pitifully wrong. God is not dead. He's the living God before whom we live our lives. His son died for us, the ungodly, unbelievably, while we were still separated from him, while we were sinners, creatures who rejected and rebelled against the very one who was to save us. And so we worry, so much worry, because we fundamentally don't trust his providence in our lives. Well, among the jobs of a preacher is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. In this regard, one could scarcely hope for a better topic to preach on than God's providence. Why is this? Well, think of it, because everything, everywhere, comprehensively, for everyone, eternally, is created by, governed by, preserved by, and continues by his providence and his providence alone. This provides, as we will discover tonight, great comfort to those who, who are believers and great affliction to those who look not to God, but to idols and, as Paul says, creeping things. From those very grand opening words of Scripture, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. To the very last words of Scripture, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. We see and sense the beauty and majesty of redemptive history unfold according to His providence, by His means, for his good pleasure and for his ends. I mentioned it this morning and I get choked up to think about it. Do you realize where we are in redemptive history? We are, so to speak, down to the very last book. We're down to the last book. Everything prior to Revelation has either happened or is happening we're in the last days awaiting Christ's earthly return when what has been prophesied throughout Scripture will occur. You and I are living in a time where we have the advantage of seeing and of reading backwards and seeing the unfolding of redemptive history as a result. We have seen God's complete and total providence throughout history. And it is recorded for us in his word. That's why we worship God. He spoke and the world resulted. He promised salvation and redemption from sin. And he did it. He did it. He's plainly told us that he is returning and he will inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth. And it will happen. This topic of God's providence is the overarching meta-narrative that begins, sustains, directs, governs, and ends all things. There's nothing, literally nothing, that has, is, or ever will occur outside of His plan, His providence, His way toward His ends. 
In fact, can I go so far as to say absent providence, there is no God. Providence undergirds, sustains, and is necessary for everything, everywhere, for everyone. Realize this, and you fall on your face in doxology. Consider that your next breath, your birth, the mechanics by which you move, the physiology by which your heart beats, the complexity of your thinking process, how you bear children, is solely by God's providence. The sun rises and sets, the wind blows, and the tides move in and out according to His plan and His timetable. Who governs you? The history of all events past, present, and future is according to His plan. Your freedom, where you live, where you were born and to whom, and the very reason you're here right now at this precise moment in human history, listening to me with rapt attention, is because God directed it to be so. You are alive and not dead. A believer rather than an unbeliever. A saint rather than a sinner. Because He so directed in His providence. And you are loved as part of that plan. Because he first loved each of us, an eternal love none of us could or would ever want to escape from for a millisecond of time. A love that overcame our sin, our rejection, our rebellion. Such is the extent and depth and height and boundlessness and timelessness of his great love for us. This is a magnificent attribute of God, one unique to him and to him alone. It's the healing balm that each of our souls craves and the antidote to our individual and national anxieties. So I'm on page eight and I'd like to define providence for you. The plain meaning is from the Latin, meaning the ability to foresee attend to, and provide. That tells us much about providence. But the theologian Wayne Grudem provides, I think, a better working biblical definition of providence. And that is this. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way, and we'll go through three of them. Number one, he keeps them existing and maintains the properties with which he created them what we might call preservation. Number two, he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do, what we could call concurrence. And lastly, he directs them to fulfill his purposes, what we would call government or governance. So we see three important aspects here of God's providence. His preservation of all things, his concurrence with what he created, and his government. That is the governance in directing how all things will be directed toward his great redemptive plan. John MacArthur comments that, quote, understanding providence is the heart of worship. Think about it. Worship is meditating on providence. In other words, worship is rehearsing in our minds who God is and what he has done. And the trust that you have in what is yet to come 
is predicated on the fact that God has ordained every step in history. So providence is simply God at work. The Bible teaches that God is at work in everything and nothing happens outside his will. Everything that occurs is within the framework that God has established to accomplish his own ends. Derek Thomas eloquently expressed this grand topic of God's providence this way. Few things, he said, distinguish Christian and secular worldviews with greater clarity than the doctrine of providence. This doctrine insists that everything that happens does so because God wills it to happen, wills it to happen before it happens, and wills it to happen in the way that it happens. Such a view signals immediately that history is neither arbitrary nor fortuitous, neither is it simple determinism, as though our own choices and involvement have no effect or relevance whatsoever. So central is this doctrine of providence that summary accounts of Christian doctrine, such as the Westminster Shorter Catechism, raise the issue at the very beginning. Thus, question 11 of the Shorter Catechism asks, what are God's works of providence? To which the answer is given, God's work of providence are his most holy, wise and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and their actions. So in regard to this, recall our sermon text. Let me tell you about King, King, King Nebuchadnezzar. At the time, the greatest and most powerful king on the earth. He depended upon himself until God humbled him to crawling about on all four extremities like a wild animal and grazing on the grass, reduced to eating grass, driven out of his opulent palace until, and this is important, Scripture records the Holy Spirit working in him, he lifted his eyes, Scripture says, up. In other words, off of himself. He lifted his eyes up and he looked up to God. And here's what he says in Daniel 4.34. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion. Listen to the echoes now of what we're talking about tonight. Is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? King Nebuchadnezzar is acknowledging who actually has dominion over all things whose kingdom will endure and who has power so great that he and he alone will do according to his will and nothing and no one can restrain his hand. That's power and dominion and providence. But does that mean, as Daniel writes, that we, the created, are to be accounted as nothing? Do we as humans have agency 
That is freedom. And it turns out that we do have agency within God's providence. And we are still responsible and our actions do make a difference. In fact, listen to how our subordinate standard, the Westminster Confession of Faith, articulates what Scripture says on this topic in chapter 5. God, the creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. In relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause of all things come to pass immutably and unerringly. Yet by the same providence, he orders them to come about according to the nature of secondary causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Who are those necessary secondary causes? It's us and our actions. What this is saying is that, yes, we do have freedom, but as a secondary cause. In other words, only insofar as it accords with God's ultimate plans. God is not at the mercy of our choices. Scripture plainly tells us this in the 103rd Psalm, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Scripture provides illustrations of this very principle. Listen to Luke's description of Peter and John when they were arrested in the temple and interrogated before the council for preaching about Jesus. Hear their argument, which centers around providence and how God uses our, the created, our actions as secondary causes. This is from Acts 4, verses 26 through 28. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you hear what's being said? Even though the mighty kings of the world, the most powerful men on earth, had gathered to do what they thought was their will, it is in reality predestined by the hand of God and of His plan. Even the sin of man is governed by God for His purposes and His plan. It is God's providence that will rule. Despite the evil in men's hearts who would arrest and murder the only Holy One, God Himself, it is all part of God's providence and plan that He might, through the secondary cause of man's evil, be the cure for that very evil by providing His only Son to bear our sin and suffer our punishment and to save those who are His. But we forget this. And we ask ourselves the same question. I know I do over and over again. 
Why did this happen to me? Job asks the same question. It is the same question asked in that one-time famous but unbiblical book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Derek Thomas answers that question clearly and most importantly, from the authority of Scripture. He said, consistent with the data of Scripture, we must conclude that in the traumatic war, and I want to be sensitive here, because almost none of us have gotten to this age without, in many cases, great suffering. We must conclude that in the traumatic war between God and cosmic powers, Listen here to the echo of Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. So this traumatic war between God and cosmic powers, in which Christians are often the battleground, Satan must get permission to touch one of God's own children, as he did with Job. And in Luke, listen to Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. Whatever problems arise, and genuine problems do arise, a solution posed at the expense of God's sovereignty and providence is one that fails to do justice to the data of Scripture. Affliction, to be sure, is what the Puritans of old called God's strange work. Remember Lamentations 3. He does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Amazing providence. God uses even sin and sinners, evil men, to do his holy will, not only in the lives of individuals, but in his bride, the church. Listen to Westminster Confession of Faith 5.7. The providence of God reaches to all creatures so in a very special way it cares for his church and disposes all things for its good. Another example, the entire life of Joseph, at least in relation to this question of why is this happening to me, is summarized in that that famous verse in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It was part of his plan all along. God doesn't wait, see what happens, panics, and says, what do I do? You'll never find that in Scripture. The Puritan John Flavel had it, I think, absolutely dead on right when he wrote, sometimes providences, like Hebrews letters, must be read backwards. What about the rest of Scripture? Listen to Hebrews 1.10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. The 135th Psalm. 
Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and the sea and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having predetermined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And yet, He is actually not far. He is as close as our very breath. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in his wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Why? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we, am, we obtained an inheritance, having been, been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And despite, despite being people who laid actual eyes on Christ, who saw with their own eyes his miracles, who directly saw the enormity of the means by which he exercised his providence, they still rejected him. How could this be? I mean, I... I, God forgive me if I had lived in that area and had rejected him. Think of this. Scripture clearly records that he caused a barren elderly Sarah to give birth. Romans 4, an iron axe head to float on water, 2 Kings 6, three men to survive the fiery furnace unscathed, Daniel 3, the dead to rise, the blind to see, the leper to be healed, the paralyzed to walk again, for sin to be given, to walk on water, to calm raging storms with one word, and to rise from the dead himself. Despite seeing this with their own eyes, hearing with their own ears, yet they rejected him. They could not see or understand his providence and rejected the very God who created them and gave them life and breath. Isaiah was right when he wrote in chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, the heart of the people is dull, their eyes heavy. Their eyes blind, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It is, he said, not the secret things that are hidden, but the revealed things. Just so he gets us attention, our attention, 38 chapters later, in chapter 44, he says it again, they know not. Nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. God's providence is hard for us. It's too big a concept 
for us. What we cannot see or touch or feel, we tend to discount or disbelieve. But I think we finally and quietly must contend, content ourselves with the Lord's admonition to us in Isaiah 55. When we think about and meditate on this big concept of God's providence. For my thoughts, he said, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing in which I sent it. That's providence. God has is and always will, without exception, ensure the promise of salvation through belief in Christ and is never, ever under the control of the choices of evil men and women, nor the dark spiritual powers of Satan, but only through his will and what he has planned for you and your life. God has a plan, and as we've talked about many times in this Sunday evening service, It is a very, very good plan. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper put it this way. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So as we summarized, be assured, brother and sister, Of this in Christ. Number one, God created all that exists and he rules over absolutely everything by his almighty power and his goodness. He who knit you in the womb is in absolute control. God upholds, directs, governs all creatures, actions and things from the greatest to the least. He holds you in the cup of his hand. And he has a very good plan for you who are believers. He does so to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Nothing can or ever will happen to you that is outside this very good plan. I cannot explain that to you. Because in the here and now, in the only thing we know, it doesn't always feel like that. But Scripture promises us. It is an ironclad promise that nothing can or ever will happen to you that is outside his plan. And like Abraham of old, we will, as Genesis 18 records, say this. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And lastly, God manifests his providence in this. Despite the wicked actions of wicked men, he sent his one and only son to die a brutal death he did not deserve. Yet he loves you so much that he sent that son 
that you might have everlasting life together with him. He forgives you. He loves you fiercely. And no, <clears throat> no one ever can or ever will snatch you from his hand. Ever. Pray with me. Lord, we better understand now that what David wrote in the 33rd Psalm is truth. You spoke and it came to be. You commanded and it stood firm. It is your counsel that stands forever and the plans of your heart to all generations. Thank you, Lord, that you love us so much that you have worked every detail of your plan to the good of those who belong to you. Help us to see, Lord. Help us to read your word clearly and see and understand backwards your providence in our lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your presence in our lives. For it is in your strong name that we pray. Amen. We have really uh, dove, dived, divin, <laughs> deep. Uh, someone, t- if you figure out what the past tense of d- dive is, let me know. Um, but we've gone deep on a lot of weeks, and one of the really great things is that these are are great deep truths and it gives us uh, fodder to meditate on and to think about during the week if things were easy we would we would just forget them and walk away but i think god gives us some hard things sometimes so that just for that very purpose that we will think about these things and think about him what a great truth this uh, this concept of providence thank you greg for bringing this to us we're going to uh, in in response to uh, the sermon on providence we're going to conclude by singing the last stanza of our god reigns gordy let's start with a re- refrain again okay Would stand you with me please <laughs>
out the benediction that I, I wish I could come to each of you and touch you on the shoulder and look you in the eye because I think somehow that contact reinforces this very benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon each of you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance unto you and give you His deep peace both now and forevermore. Go now, each of you, into your mission field remembering that we live Coram Deo before the face of the living God. Amen.